Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, thank you for joining us, guys. And also thank you to our new Patreon supporters over the past week. Uh, we have Camilla Vero, Helen Studholm, Thomas Murray and Tom Davies. And also the following people increased their pledge, which was very kind of them. So that's Tom Bertles, Lorna Blake and Alison McCarthy. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to join these amazing people, then you can head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. And as we say every time, honestly, it means the world to us. So thank you very much. So the past couple of weeks have seen us discuss a few more light-hearted cases. So we did have those Pottery Cottage murders a few weeks ago, the, the double bill that I did basically drove Mark to drink. So after that, we did decide we needed to lighten the mood a little bit. So Mark covered the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper. And then I bored you all with my outrage about GDPR breaches during my episode on bigamy. But this week, Mark is taking us back to normal. I certainly am, although I must say the uh, GDPR breaches has prompted a lot of discussion. A lot of people have found that very interesting, haven't they? <laughs> a lot of people hmm. are just as outrageous, uh, outraged as we were. I know, I know. Um, but yeah, today's episode, we are back to normal. Today's episode is most certainly brutal. Um, and it's also quite upsetting, I would say. It features the abduction, rape and murder of three boys. One aged 14, one aged 7 and one aged just 6. And whilst we never go into minute detail when we cover crimes such as this, this episode is disturbing and if you're in any doubt, I would encourage you probably to switch off and go and listen to the Peru 2 instead, which was a a nice light-hearted case from, I think it was season 2, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we don't tend to do warnings very often because... We are a true crime podcast and that is what people expect. However, yeah, I think it's very right to do a, a quick warning just at the moment. If this isn't something that you're going to feel you're able to listen to, just, yeah, we'll see you next week. Head off. <laughs> yeah. Um. So there are also a lot of names in this case and I don't expect you to remember them all. I don't think you need to to follow the story, but I think you will remember the victims' names because we're going to start with uh, with their story. Uh, so here goes. Jason Swift was described as a streetwise 14-year-old when he was reported missing in July 1985. The headmaster at his school, Clarence McKenzie, said Jason was a loving, innocent little boy who was in need of love and affection. Jason had spent time in care between the ages of 6 and 10 and was described as a timid, sad child. He was viciously bullied at school and consequently retreated into himself. In his spare time, he enjoyed playing Monopoly on his own and he was also a passionate foreign coin collector. I love foreign coins. I always just find them so intriguing. I thought you would probably have something to say on playing Monopoly on your own because that makes me, it makes my heart break. That is heartbreaking. Um, I'm not very good at playing Monopoly. I get bored after a couple of goes around the board and... Yeah, I'm not the best Monopoly player. I kind of just give up a bit too easy. I've not played for a long time, but I I always seem to recall whenever I did play, I would always get really frustrated and sort of angry with it. Oh, bless him. That's really sad playing on his own as well. It is. It is really sad. 
And in some of the source material that I've consulted whilst I've been researching this case, Jason is described as backward. And of course, we wouldn't use that term now, but it is true that he did struggle at school and he was easily influenced as well. So he was someone who was very vulnerable, I would say. And I think whilst we wouldn't necessarily use that descriptive term right now, I think that does give you a good understanding of him. And and whilst it's a, not a term we would want to use, if you read that in, in your research, you kind of know what they mean by that. And he just sounds, oh, I just, I want to give him a hug, this poor kid. I know, I know. And we'll put pictures up as well on Instagram of all of the victims in, in this case, um, just to bring it to life uh, even mm. more. Um, So after leaving the care system in 1981 at the age of 10, Jason returned to live with his mother in Tottenham in North London. But he became increasingly unhappy there and he would regularly run away from home, often disappearing for days on end. In June 1985, Jason went missing for a few days before turning up in a hostel for runaway children. Seemingly having had enough of living with his mother at this point and perhaps also seeking to break the cycle of repeatedly running away, Jason reached out to the one person that he was closest to at this time, his half-sister Hayley. Hayley was a few years older than Jason and lived in a flat in Hackney in East London with her boyfriend Adam. And she'd always felt maternal towards Jason and she begged him to move in with her. Jason agreed and for a time he enjoyed the relative normality of living in a stable home with somebody to care for him. With his sister's encouragement he returned to school and it seemed as though Jason at last had a half decent chance of leading a normal, perhaps even a happy life. But for Jason it wasn't to be. After initially settling back into school, he began to regularly truant, and his sister began hearing reports that he was hanging around with a group of older men. When she left the flat to go shopping with her boyfriend one Saturday in early July, Jason stayed behind to play Monopoly by himself. When she returned, he was gone. So too was £75 in cash which Hayley had kept in a drawer in her bedroom. Jason had also taken all of his clothes, some books and his treasured Monopoly set. That's just awful. She must have just, her heart must have just sunk when she got home and realised that he'd actually not just popped out. Like, that's horrible. Because up until that point, he'd only been living with her about six weeks, but he'd really started to get back to normal, back to his old self. And um, on that day, before she went shopping with Adam, her boyfriend, Uh, He talked about how happy he was living there and then for her to come back from shopping and he was gone, that must have been a real shock for her. And very sadly for Hayley, she was never to see her brother again. Two days after leaving his sister's flat, Jason headed to the Silver Sands Caravan site in Camber Sands, a seaside resort in East Sussex. Here, he rented a caravan for two days and enjoyed swimming in the sea and visiting the fish and chip shop on the caravan site. By Wednesday, however, it appeared that he'd run out of money. Jason headed into central London and sold a number of foreign coins to a coin dealer in Charing Cross. But Jason only got £5 for this and he knew that he desperately needed a sustainable income. And very sadly, he turned to sex work. At this time, central London was not the glamorous place that we know it is today. It was seedy and deprived and there was no shortage of predatory men seeking to abuse a 14-year-old boy. 
this makes my heart break because he could have just gone back to his sister. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. Jason's movements over the next few weeks aren't overly clear, but we do know that he stayed with a man around the weekend of July the 13th and 14th. Furthermore, a teacher at Jason's school remembered seeing him boarding the 149 bus in Stamford Hill in North London on Monday the 15th of July. Approximately a week later, Jason sent his mother a card which had a South Coast postmark, claiming that he had been working with a fun fair at South End and was soon to travel north. Shortly after this, Haley's boyfriend received a phone call from Jason. He sounded nervous and hesitant, but he said he was alright and claimed, as he had done once before, that he was staying in South London with a friend and his dad. Now, the only indication of his movements over the next two months was a curiously formal birthday card his mother received on the 11th of September. In it, Jason wrote, Dear Mum, I'm okay, I haven't forgotten about you, so don't worry about me. I will come and see you in the next few months. Happy birthday from Jason. Jason's mum didn't keep the envelope in which the card came, but believed it was posted in either Croydon or Crawley. And I think from some other things that I've read, he was almost flitting between London and the South Coast over the summer of that year. I suppose it's quite easy to as well. Like there's a lot of easy routes, aren't there? So yeah, it would kind of make sense. He was spotted at various coach stations like Victoria Coach Station um, throughout this time. Um, And two months later, on the 6th of November, a girl who knew Jason from school thought she saw him on the 253 bus in North East London. And that was a credible sighting. The police did deem that to be a credible sighting of Jason. And it was actually the last sighting of him. Three weeks later, possibly on the 27th of November, Jason found himself in a dirty, stinking flat on the Kingsmead estate in Hackney. Now, I just wanted to go off on a bit of a tangent and talk about the Kingsmead estate before we go on to uh, what happened to Jason. Um, some, Some of our listeners may have heard of the Kingsmead estate, particularly if they live in London or East London or even just in the UK. Um, it's, a, it's a huge estate in the East End of London. Um, it's really, it's a collection of, of council estates. So there's lots of high rise flats. Um, it's almost like its own community, but it's not really a good one. Okay, it's not something that I've heard of. It's not a place that I know of. It's not that famous, but I definitely heard of it. And it it, it certainly did have a reputation as being a, a very deprived area um, where, where poverty was high and crime rates were high. Um, it was also a place in the 80s that seemed to be filled with paedophiles. And the only reason I can think for that is that People may have gone to prison for various sex crimes and then when they get released from prison, maybe they were put on the Kingsmead estate because it was just one of those estates that happened to have a lot of available accommodation. I don't know. Mm, Potentially, that would make sense. Yeah, but it was definitely an area that was almost swarming with paedophiles back in the 80s. So, as I said, Jason found himself on the 27th of November in this dirty, stinking flat on the Kingsmead estate in Hackney. There, he was drugged with the tranquilizers diazepam and tamazepam before being repeatedly raped by six men. Jason's 12-hour ordeal ended with him being forcibly pinned to a bed as he was brutally raped and suffocated. A single tear fell from his cheek as his body went limp. 
Jason died in that disgusting flat, having been used and abused like a piece of meat. He was just 14 years old. A few days later, on a cold, crisp morning on Saturday the 30th of November, a farm manager named Terry Wilson was out hunting for pheasant in Shonksmill Spinney, a two-acre area of wild woodland near Ongar in Essex. As he prodded the undergrowth in the hope of disturbing a pheasant, he saw something pink. Thinking it might be a pig, he looked more closely, only to realise it was in fact part of a human leg. Shocked at this discovery, he raced to the nearby farmhouse and called the police. When they arrived, they found a body, later identified to be Jason Swift. He'd been buried in a shallow grave and was lying naked, curled up in the fetal position. As news of this gruesome discovery leaked out, the story was picked up by the media and featured on that evening's news bulletin. Jason's father remembers being sat at home watching that bulletin, hearing that the police had discovered the body of a boy in woodland and really feeling for the parents. And not for one minute did he think it was his boy. God, that is absolutely horrific. Yeah. This poor kid. And oh, there's just no words, are there? There there aren't, no. And it, it does get worse as we go on to... Uh, victim number two. So two months earlier on Saturday the 14th of September, six-year-old Barry Lewis was waiting for his mother's weekly visit. Barry had had what can only be described as an appallingly shit life up until this point. Brought up by his mother in South London in impoverished circumstances, he had soon learned to fend for himself. With his mother living in a halfway house while she waited to be rehoused by the local council, Barry went to live in nearby Woolworth with her friend Denise so that he didn't have to move schools. Like Jason, Barry craved love and affection but both were in short supply. And that's why when his mother failed to turn up that Saturday for her weekly visit, little Barry was easily able to brush off her rejection. He wasn't bothered and I can just almost imagine him as well sat there with his backpack on, on Saturday morning, excitedly awaiting the visit from his mum, and then she doesn't turn up, as planned, and he probably just did brush it off, because he was used to being let down by the system, by his loved ones, and again, it just breaks my heart. Honestly, you're just trying to make me cry with this episode, Jesus. I know, it's brutal, isn't it? The following day, so the Sunday, Barry had lunch with Denise, his mum's friend who he was living with, and her seven-year-old daughter Jackie. And then the two children went to see their friend Michelle who lived a short distance away. The trio played outside Trafalgar House, a large block of council flats, before heading to the balcony of Michelle's first floor flat where they continued to play. Michelle's mother remembered seeing Barry through the kitchen window. He'd climbed onto the top of the balcony wall and was balancing precariously. She banged on the window and shouted at him to get down. And Barry did, but as a six-year-old boy would, he sulked. And he told Michelle and Jackie that he was going to head home and he left the girls who continued to play. When Jackie arrived back home an hour or so later and there was no sign of Barry, she was immediately concerned. She told her mother that Barry had left for home an hour earlier and after searching for him but to no avail, Denise called the police. Barry had seemingly vanished into thin air. 
The mystery of his disappearance would not be solved until two and a half months later, when a farmer in Waltham Abbey discovered his body beside a bridle path in an area known locally as Crooked Mile. Two and a half months later as well, to yeah. not get any answers. Yeah. What happened to Barry over the course of that afternoon and over the subsequent 24 hours will, I think, haunt me until the day I die. What follows is one of the most harrowing and upsetting accounts of child abduction and rape that I've ever come across. So once again, please be warned. And whilst we've not gone into loads of detail about what happened to Barry, um, it is incredibly upsetting. And what, what, what follows is taken from testimony of a witness who was there. So it's not me embellishing or, or kind of uh, elaborating on anything that I don't know to be true. After leaving Michelle's house, Barry did indeed set off in the direction of home. As he walked along the pavement, a car pulled up beside him. Inside was a middle-aged man. He beckoned Barry over to the car and offered to give him a lift. Perhaps initially hesitant, the man offered Barry a bag of sweets and to any six-year-old boy, not least a six-year-old boy who craved love and affection, this would have been enough to gain his trust. Barry accepted the man's offer of both a lift and the sweets and climbed in. Barry ate the sweets, which unbeknown to him were laced with tamazepam and diazepam, and the man drove around long enough for the drugs to take effect. Barry would have become groggy and disorientated quite quickly, and it wasn't long before he found himself in that same dingy council flat in a high-rise tower block on the Kingsmead estate, unable to comprehend what was going on. Over the next 24 hours, Barry was repeatedly raped by at least eight men. He cried during this ordeal. He cried for his absent mother. He cried to be allowed to go home. He cried because he hadn't been given food or water for 24 hours. And the whole time, as he was passed around by these men, he was told to shut up and give him more drugs and raped again and again and again. At the end of his ordeal, it was believed that Barry was dead. He was placed in a car and driven to Waltham Abbey, where his body was later discovered by two of the men who had raped him. Only, Barry wasn't dead. On the journey to Waltham Abbey, he woke up. Alarmed that the boy was still alive and knowing there was no way they could release him, one of the men smothered him with a blanket and killed him. Barry's short, sad life had come to a premature end in the most brutal way. Jesus Christ. I'm glad you haven't gone into any more detail, but that's that's bad enough. This is just horrendous. Yeah, I think what upsets me the most about it is, I mean, Barry was six. He was the youngest of the three victims that we're talking about today. And crying for his absent mother, crying for a mother that wasn't actually even a great mom, but he was so desperate for help that that was his instinct to just cry for his mom and cry to be allowed to go home. It's, it is, it's, it's probably, it probably is a saddest uh, instance of crime that I've ever covered. Our third victim, Mark Tildesley was born in August, 1976, and he was seven years old when he disappeared whilst visiting a fair in his hometown of Wokingham in Berkshire. The Frank Ayres Fun Fair came to the Carnival Field off Wellington Road in the centre of Wokingham four times a year, and it usually coincided its stay with the school holidays. 
and May 1984 was no exception. Mark Tildesley's school had broken up for its half-term holiday on the 25th of May and the fair was in town. Mark's hometown of Wokingham had afforded him a greater level of safety and security than either Jason or Barry had experienced growing up. Unlike the inner city estates they called home, Wokingham was safe and rural. There was a real sense of community and nothing bad ever seemed to happen here. And I thought this was really interesting because it's such a contradiction or juxtaposition between um, Barry and Jason's home. Um, They were brought up in absolute poverty in crime-ridden areas, whereas Mark was brought up in Wokingham. And I've been there and it's a beautiful place. And it's quite often voted as one of the best places to live in the country. And and, it breaks my heart again. And like you said, yeah, like you said, nothing bad ever seems to happen in certain places and you just wouldn't expect to have to you know have a curfew or something like that I suppose as well like especially at this time as well but it just it also made me feel really sad because this still goes on today that we've got so many children in this country that are growing up in absolute poverty and those two two boys Barry and Jason were growing up in poverty and then you've got Mark and it's no no one's fault at all but he wasn't and I just think that inequality is just it's sad isn't it yeah like just even just seeing that they had different childhoods is just it just doesn't feel right isn't it Yeah, yeah it doesn't feel right in a in a country like this So as a result of Mark's upbringing, he was afforded a lot of freedom for a child of his age. He would often go out on his beloved second-hand gold rally tomahawk bike, cycling all over town, either on his own or with friends. And it wasn't unusual for him to cycle the half-mile distance to the fair on his own, which is exactly what he did on June the 1st in 1984. After eating his dinner at just after 5.30pm, Mark left his home at number one Rose Court to make his way to the fair, which would be opening at 6pm that evening. Mark was really excited about this particular trip as he had met a man earlier in the day who had arranged to meet him at the fair. Mark had met this man outside a sweet shop in the town and the man had given him 50 pence to go into the shop and buy some sweets for himself. The man had mentioned he would be at the fair later that evening and said he would pay for Mark to go on the dodgems. Imagine if he told his mum in passing, like, oh, this happened earlier. What what a different story his would have been. I wonder if part of him knew that it was wrong to accept that money and to buy the sweets and to meet this man who was going to pay for him to go on the dodgems. But at seven, you just don't really have... you, You might have been told that it's wrong... Um, but you won't necessarily realise the dangers. So, so you think, You're well, I can do it. You're just excited for sweets and dodgers. Of course yeah. you would be, absolutely, yeah. Oh, my God. And also, if this man has said to him, like, oh, don't mention it, yeah. then he wouldn't, like, he wouldn't even realise that it's something to be worried about or anything. No. So, as Mark left home, he promised to be back by 7.30pm. On his way to the fair, he met two friends who were in town at the time. However, they wanted to go back home first and then go to the fair later. Mark didn't want to wait for them, so he continued on his journey alone. Mark arrived at the fair and met the man who paid for his sweets earlier. The man had a friend with him this time and they asked if Mark wanted to head to their car where they had some sweets for him. 
Mark was hesitant now. He didn't want to leave the fair and he must have been able to sense some of the imminent danger because he started to back away from the men now. But they grabbed him and dragged him towards the car which was a short distance away. Once there he was physically picked up by the men and forced into the back of the car. Another man was in the driving seat. Mark was driven a short distance away to a blue and white caravan with dirty lace curtains parked up in a remote field called the Moors where a fourth man was also waiting. Mark was taken inside the caravan where he was given a glass of milk laced with diazepam and tamazepam which he only drank half of remarking that it tasted funny but half was enough to do the damage. After the drink had taken effect, the four men proceeded to rape Mark, each taking it in turns. When all four had finished, one of the gang thrust some more pills down Mark's throat and began to rape him again. Soon the others followed suit. Towards the end of Mark's sickening gang rape, one of the men grabbed him by the throat and squeezed the life out of him. Everything went black. Mark was dead. When Mark's mum Lavinia arrived home from work that evening and inquired where her son was, Mark's dad John said he had gone to the fair and the pair of them decided to head there to meet him. And I don't think that was because they were worried about him. It's not very clear from the different accounts I've read, but it looks like they'd planned to meet him at 7.30. I don't know. One account said he told his dad he'd be home by 7.30. The other said that he was planning on meeting them at the fair at 7.30. But either way, by the time Lavinia and John arrived at the fair, Mark would have already been dead. Not that they would find this out for many years later. For a long time their son was simply missing because his body was never found and to this day it has still never been found. So I wanted to start with the three victims in this case first and tell each of their stories fully and of course these abductions, rapes and murders are all linked by one paedophile ring which was operating in London in the 1980s and for some reason, I don't really know why I did it but you may have noticed you might not have, but I've kind of approached this in reverse chronology order so We started with the murder of Jason Swift, but he was actually the last known victim of this gang. Mark Tildesley, who we've just spoken about, the little boy at the fair, he was actually their first victim. And then little Barry Lewis, the six-year-old boy who lived in South London, um, he was the second victim. So I don't know why I did that, but there must have been a reason. It's, It's odd sometimes how the cases kind of present themselves to you, isn't it? Yeah. I think maybe I was drawn to Jason's story more and just felt that I wanted to start there and work backwards which I I do I do do that sometimes I'll sometimes I'll even go to the scene of the crime and then work all the way back and then jump forward again I don't know Um, but there must be a reason for it so just who was responsible for the rape and murder of these three boys this is the thing you cannot be leaving this as an unsolved crime because I cannot cope and what I will say, actually, I um I heard about this case through a book that I've got, um a book that somebody bought me for Christmas, and it's a it's Crime Watch UK the book, and it was printed in 1987, so it's very much a vintage book. You can't buy it now; it's um it's not being printed anymore. Um, but it was uh, bought on eBay, I think. It's in really good condition, and the case of Jason Swift and Barry Lewis was covered in the book. 
and um, at the time of the book going to print, it was unsolved. So I read, I read the book, I read about their uh, story, and at that point for me, it was very much an unsolved case. And obviously, I went online and and looked into it and could see actually there was a resolution, but there was also another victim that that went before uh, Jason and and Barry. So, um, so it was it was it was really nice actually. It was the only nice thing that there was justice here. So let's take you back to a cold winter's day in December 1985, a couple of days after Jason Swift's body has been discovered and a couple of days before Barry Lewis's body will be discovered. On the 2nd of December, a man named Sidney Cook was seen driving his blue Jaguar around Hackney in East London, trying to entice young boys into his car. So Sidney Cook, he lived on the Kingsmead estate and um he was also known as Hissing Sid, and I'm not sure why, but I mean, fucking hell, isn't that just, that just tells you enough, doesn't it? If someone's called Hissing Sid, and he wore, he would wear a stinking dirty suit and a really dirty trilby hat as well, so he was quite a distinctive guy, and um, several worried parents had seen him on that particular day, and they'd reported him to the police. They didn't know who he was, but they did take a note of the vehicle registration, which wasn't registered to Sid, um, but the police did manage to apprehend him about a week later. They did manage to track him down. God, can you imagine being a parent and you spot someone like that? You're going to know straight away, like, that is not somebody you want coming anywhere near your children. No way. So when officers questioned Cook, they discovered he lived on the same estate as Jason Swift, as I said, the Kingsmead estate, which was overrun with paedophiles at that time. And Cook admitted several offences of gross indecency, but he denied that he'd been trying to entice young boys into his car. And when questioned about Jason Swift, he claimed he'd never heard of the boy and had certainly not been involved in his murder. And of course, the police would have wanted to question him about Jason because Jason's body had been found a couple of days before this incident. And we've then got a guy who is trying to entice young boys into his car. And they then subsequently find that he lived on the Kingsmead estate where Jason had lived before he'd run away. So it it did make sense. But, you know, to the police, Cook was just one of hundreds of sex offenders on their radar. And it may have been suspicious that he lived on the same estate as Jason. But this was just circumstantial evidence. There was nothing concrete linking Cook to Jason. So no further action was taken at this point. After the discovery of Barry Lewis's body around this time, the Met Police got in touch with the Essex Constabulary who were heading up the investigation into Jason's murder. And of course it was Essex who were dealing with that because Jason's body had been found in Essex. The two forces collaborated on their separate investigations and they discovered there were common features between Jason's murder and Barry's murder. Both boys had died of asphyxiation, they were both found in shallow graves just 10 miles apart, and both were naked lying in the fetal position. What's more, it emerged that both boys had been drugged with temazepam and diazepam. Both drugs were known to be used by paedophiles, and the Met Police and the Essex Constabulary joined forces, using the Holmes database to record every scrap of information that was coming into them. Police commissioned a second independent post-mortem on both Jason and Barry and they found that Jason had died while sexual attacks were taking place and to them this pointed to only one possible explanation. Well, two. 
Jason was the victim of either a violent paedophile or a violent paedophile ring. Separate inquiries were ongoing around this time into a number of paedophile rings that were operating in the London area and the police set about questioning anybody with links to these groups in connection with the murder of Jason Swift. So I don't know why they focused solely on Jason Swift initially um, rather than Jason and Barry because there were these similarities in, in their murders but they must have had their reasons. So initially the investigation was very much just focused on Jason's murder. Maybe they had more information or there was more to go on, potentially. It could be, or it could be that the second autopsy that was performed on Jason proved that he had been murdered during a a violent sex act. Mm. Anyway, one such man who was linked to one of these many paedophile rings that were operating in the area at the time um, was a guy called Robert Oliver. He too lived on the Kingsmead estate, the same estate where Jason and Cook lived. Police questioned Oliver and to their astonishment, he confessed to being involved in Jason's murder straight away. He admitted that he'd met Jason on a number of occasions and that he had abused him with Sidney Cook, the guy who had been trying to entice boys into his car, and another associate, a man called Lenny Smith. Oliver had had a troubled upbringing himself. His mother would dress him in girls' clothes and send him to school and he was sexually abused as a child. And I know it's probably more accepted now, isn't it, to dress uh, a a child in in clothes of the opposite sex and to raise a child as gender fluid, whether you agree with it or not. Um, But that's more accepted now. But I don't think that's what his mum was doing. I would guess that she had deep-rooted psychological problems. Possibly she wanted a girl and had a boy and couldn't really accept that. So it meant that... Oliver had a very, very much an identity crisis as he became a teenager and he ended up becoming a sex worker. Oliver said he met Cook through Smith, who he had first met in the West End, where they both worked the streets. So I hope you're with me so far because it's um, it can get confusing with all of these names. Yeah, I think I think so. I think I'm following, but it like like you said, there's a lot of people involved in this. It's horrendous. All you really need to know at this point is these three men were part of a paedophile ring uh, connected to the murder of Jason at this point. So over a period of nearly six hours, Oliver told the police of his relationships with different men on the Kingsmead estate and their connection with Jason in the months between his disappearance and the time that he was killed. Oliver admitted a minor part in Jason's abduction, rape and murder, but he said that Sidney Cook and Lenny Smith were the main culprits. He said they abused and strangled Jason in the front of Cook's Jaguar. But police were not convinced with his version of events. They believed that he may have elaborated or made up certain aspects of the account. So police set out to corroborate what he had said and they visited Oliver's roommate, a man called Leslie Bailey. They took Bailey in for questioning and to their surprise once again, he quickly admitted his part in abusing Jason Swift. He said he went to the flat they were holding Jason in and upon his arrival, Cook told him to go to the bedroom. He said when he opened the door, Jason was lay on the bed dying. Bailey then drove out to Essex to dispose of Jason's body with Cook. Bailey was described by police as an intellectual lightweight. They said he was someone who was open to suggestion and they wasted no time in suggesting that he was responsible for the murder of Jason Swift and they subsequently charged him with this. 
At this point, Smith and Cook were questioned. Cook was serving two years in Brixton Prison for his part in an earlier sex crime. Police said Cook was difficult to interview. He tried to manipulate and control the process at every turn. He displayed narcissistic traits and would talk to the police until they got very close to the subject of Jason and then he would suddenly change the direction of the interview. So he was almost leading them up to the point where he was going to tell them what happened and his part in it and then he would go off on a tangent and he, I think he was doing it to just tease them. What an absolute prick. Yeah, just, he really oh, is an absolute yeah. twat. At one point during his questioning, he did confess to his part in Jason's murder, but the tape had been switched off at this point, and I think he knew that. He knew what he was doing. He was playing a game. So they couldn't really use that, but the police didn't really care because they knew this was their man. So during Cook's confession, after the interview recording had been stopped, he said there were six men involved in Jason's murder. He said it was Smith, Oliver, himself and three others who he refused to name. At one stage in the interview, Cook lay down on the floor and demonstrated how Jason was held down by the various gang members. He mimed sex act that they had performed on him and police said he seemed to be enjoying this and at one point he was visibly aroused. What an absolute freak. Isn't that fucking disgusting? Disgusting. Six days later, Cook completed his sentence at Brixton for that earlier crime and immediately upon his release, right outside the prison gates, he was arrested for the murder of Jason Swift. Lenny Smith, who was also doing time for earlier paedophile offences at this point, was too arrested upon his release from prison. Lenny Smith, however, never went to trial for Jason's murder. His lawyer argued there was no evidence other than the word of other paedophiles who should be treated as unreliable witnesses. And the police were convinced there were other suspects too who had slipped through the net. Not just Lenny Smith, he was just one example of somebody who essentially had gotten away with murder. On the 12th of May in 1989, four of Jason's killers were convicted, but they were convicted for the lesser crime of manslaughter. How the hell were they convicted of manslaughter? honestly. Oh my God. Honestly, we'll come on to it a bit later, but it's appalling. And they were sentenced to a total of 60 years between them. But Sidney Cook, who was very much deemed to be the ringleader of this paedophile ring, he got 19 years, whereas one of the others got only 13 and a half years. So, which is crazy. And when you're not given a life sentence, which these guys weren't, you are generally only required to serve half of your sentence. So Sidney Cook, sentenced to 19 years for, let's be honest, essentially murdering, raping and and abducting Jason, he actually only went on to serve 10 years. And I'll come on to what happened to him afterwards in a bit. But it's, it's absolutely appalling, isn't it? Yeah, that's disgraceful. So the four men who were convicted of Jason Swift's murder were, as I said, Sidney Cook, Leslie Bailey, Robert Oliver and also a man named Stephen Barrell who I've not mentioned up until now. So that was Jason's murderers, but what about Barry Lewis and Mark Tildesley? Well, whilst in prison, Cook, Bailey and Oliver began to boast about other killings that they had committed. Of course they did. Twats like that just can't help themselves. Well, I think it's all part of reliving that fantasy, isn't it? So sickened was one fellow prisoner, a man called Ian Gabb, that he wrote down what he'd been told and informed prison staff. 
With the cooperation of the police, they moved Gab into the cells of each of the offenders and he then informed on them. He received no preferential treatment for this. He was a convicted rapist himself, but obviously these guys were paedophiles. And I think there's almost like a sliding scale in prison, isn't there? So child sex killers, um, child sex offenders, they're the absolute lowest of the low. Then I suppose you have rapists. So whilst he was no saint, he must have very much believed that these guys deserved everything that was coming to them. I'm glad that he did this as well. Like, I don't want to say anything good about him because he's obviously... Mm. But equally, he's doing his time for the crime that he was convicted for. So that's good. But um, yeah, I'm glad he did that. Jeez. Imagine if he hadn't. I know. And I think he was doing it for purely altruistic reasons because he didn't have any reduction in his own sentence. He didn't even ask for that. He had no preferential treatment whilst in prison. He was purely doing it because he felt that justice needed to be served. Out of Cook, Bailey and Oliver, Gab, the informant, said he found Cook the most disturbing individual to share a cell with, writing in his notes... I moved in with Sidney Cook yesterday afternoon. Please, God, don't ever let this man walk our streets again. He continuously talks about sex with children. It's really sickening. Cook has already admitted to me that he has seen about 15 children killed. He boasts about this figure. Police presented Bailey with their informant's information, saying that they had evidence that he had confessed to um, Barry Lewis's murder. And consequently, when they put that to him, he then did confess to police that he was involved in the murder of Barry Lewis. So Barry was the middle victim. He was the six-year-old boy from South London. Bailey said that it wasn't just him involved in Barry's murder, however. Unfortunately, though, there was insufficient evidence to charge anybody else in connection with Barry's murder, although all four men most likely were involved, among others who were never named or brought to justice. That makes me so angry that there were others that were never named. And really, what did they go on to do? Bailey pleaded guilty to Mark's manslaughter as well, but neither Cook, who Bailey said had abducted Mark, or Smith, who Bailey had said killed him, were ever charged with that. And don't forget this guy Lenny Smith, who Bailey said had killed Mark, also had gotten away without being charged for Jason Swift's murder, even though he was definitely involved in the rape and murder of Jason Swift, and also was said by Bailey to have killed Mark, who was the last victim we talked about, the boy at the fairground. So that's crazy, he got away with it completely. And basically, it all came down to the CPS believing that prosecutions against those guys would fail as they would rely heavily on Bailey's evidence. And it would go back to that same old argument of a paedophile's testimony can't be believed. It's so difficult, though, because why not allow a jury to make that decision themselves? I appreciate that that is what the CPS are for, but really, like, allow a jury to have a listen to this and hear the testimony. And this reminded me, this whole case and this paedophile ring reminded me so much of Jimmy Savile, who we know was 
the UK's most prolific sex offender. And for those that don't know who Jimmy Savile is, so we have a lot of listeners abroad, he was really regarded as a national treasure. He was a radio DJ. He was a television presenter. He did an awful lot for charity. He was friendly with the royal family in this country and prime ministers. He was highly regarded and he was kind of loved by the whole nation. And then after his death in 2011, I think it was, um, he was well in his 80s at this point. After his death, it came to light that uh, he had abused, sexually abused uh, multiple victims in the hundreds, if not thousands, over decades and decades. And he got away with it, didn't he? His whole life, he got away with it. And he died an innocent man. And um, and I, I really thought about him in this case because I thought... There would have only been so many paedophile rings at this point, and we know that Savile was active around this time. He was active in London, and I wouldn't be surprised if Savile had connections to some of these paedophile rings that were operating at the time. And again, I really wouldn't be surprised if if Savile himself was responsible for some murders not not the ones we're talking about today necessarily although that could be the case but i think it's quite common for pedophiles to abuse rape abduct children and then to kill them either because they murder them or because they have abused them so violently that they've died. And I think with Jason Swift, the first victim that we talked about, he was 14. He was gang raped in that flat and he was... They weren't charged with his murder, they were charged with his manslaughter. And that was because really, they couldn't prove that these men set out to kill him. He may have just died during what I suppose you could call violent sex, which is heartbreaking. I know what you mean. Like I I know exactly what you mean, because they didn't necessarily set out with that as the end goal. No. So I do understand logically why it would potentially be classed as manslaughter instead. But... Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the whole Jimmy Savile case and everything with that, he at least surely would have been aware of other people who were operating in a similar manner or even potentially these disgusting people would talk to each other and give each other ideas and Mm. and and Savile was known to we'll move on in a minute from him and we will cover him separately at some point but he was known to be extremely violent when he abused children and I I know what there was one account I read uh, with Savile where he'd abused someone so violently that they required a colostomy bag for the rest of their life so you can imagine that the degradation and the violence that is used could actually end up killing somebody without them necessarily meaning to do that so so i mean really this case is a whole fucking spider web of a mess but in summary so far three boys have been killed at least eight men were involved in these killings three were brought to justice over jason swift's death albeit on the lesser charge of manslaughter and only one man was convicted of Barry Lewis's murder and of Mark Tildesley's manslaughter. Mark Tildesley's body has never been found and his parents both died without ever having the closure of being able to bury their son, but at least they knew that he had died because they had that confession from um, Bailey. So that is something because to be in that limbo land must be awful. But but yeah, his mom died in 2011, uh, sort of mid 70s and his dad died about six years before that so they they never really um had that full closure that she never got to bury her son Lavinia 
So the good news is that Bailey, the guy who was uh, charged and convicted of murdering Barry Lewis and the manslaughter of Mark, um, he was actually murdered in prison in 1993. It comes to something when someone being murdered in prison is the good news out of a story, I know, but you're I right. <laughs> Jeez. And Lavinia Tildesley, Mark's mum, so Mark was the boy at the fairground. Um, as I said, she's since died, but she was alive to see that. Not that she had a front row seat, but she was alive to learn that um, Bailey had been murdered in prison. And I, I saw an interview that she did and um, she said that she opened a bottle of champagne on the night that she heard that he'd been killed in prison. And then Jason's Yeah, I don't blame her. No, I know. And Jason's father later remarked that he got what he deserved. And normally I would never celebrate their celebration of, of someone's murder because I always drone on about capital punishment and how no one deserves to be killed. But I think on this occasion I'm totally with them. I think that Bailey did deserve to die. Even if he didn't necessarily deserve to die, and maybe he didn't deserve the death that he then had, I am completely behind the reaction that they've had. Absolutely, I think that's a completely valid reaction, and I would never think anything less of them for for popping a cork of you know bottle of champagne for that. Absolutely. I mean, that's it. It was it was their boys that were murdered, so of -hmm. course they have every right to feel that. But even though I'm removed from this case, I can still I still feel the same. I still think, yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I celebrate that fact. So we know that Leslie Bailey was murdered in prison in 1993, as I said. But what of the others? Sidney Cook, Robert Oliver, and Stephen Barrell the latter of whom we haven't really spoken much about. And also, what about Lenny Smith, the man who essentially got away with murder twice, maybe three times? Well, Cork, pretty much the ringleader in all of this, is still in prison from what I can find, and he's still alive. He's 90-fucking-3. He was released for the manslaughter of Jason Swift in 1998, I think it was, but immediately arrested and charged with further sex crimes, and that's why he's still in prison. Um, And he's quite happy staying in prison for his own safety, apparently. Robert Oliver was eventually released from prison and he changed his name to Robert Lee. He then settled in Brighton, where he immediately made contact with another paedophile in the area. And police quickly learned that he'd also been frequenting places where there were unsupervised children, like the children's section of his local library. And he, oh my yeah, God. and he was known to just sit there observing the children, but because he didn't oh, do anything to horrible. them, the police couldn't do anything because this was before the law was changed that prevented sex offenders from going within so many metres of children or places where children might congregate. Um, he was subsequently charged with sex offences in 2013, I think, and he was sent to prison for three years. And I don't think they were historic sex crimes. I think he'd very much continued to commit sex crimes upon his release, which I think was in about 1993. He didn't serve a very long sentence. Stephen Barrell, um, who I've not talked about much, I think he only served something like six years and he was last known to be living in Oxfordshire. I think he changed his name as well. And Lenny Smith, the guy that got away with it completely, um, he died of an AIDS-related illness, I think, in 2006. And despite getting away with the murders of Jason, Barry and Mark, which I'm convinced he was involved in, he did spend a lot of time in prison for other sex offences. So he he did get found guilty of those and he he did get punished. So in a way, he kind of got punished in in a loose way. 
Jesus Christ. I, like, wow. I mean, I knew it was going to be a horrific case. Um, and it was something that I just didn't even look into when you said who you were going to cover or anything. I was just like, no. And, wow. I mean, mm. yeah, I think my silence through a lot of that is going to say a lot because I've been close to tears. I'm not going to lie mm. to you for a lot of this case. That is horrendous. I think I need a hot shower and... yeah. And you need some TLC, drink. yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I found it. I found it particularly difficult. Um, I always leave it to the last minute, so I spent a lot of the weekend uh, researching and writing this. And you do go into this kind of vortex of um, barbaric depravity. That's the only way I can really describe it without thinking. But you you go into that black hole, and it's it's horrible, absolutely horrible. And I was I spent a lot of the weekend feeling very sad particularly for 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 Barry the six-year-old he was the youngest victim and uh, he'd particularly had a difficult life up until that point and for it to end in such an undignified way with him crying to 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 um for his mom you know it was just heartbreaking so the only thing that I kind of take away from this is like very loose tenuous kind of um uh positive I should I don't know the right word is um the way you talked about how that book, the Crime Watch book, was released at that point in whatever the 80, 87, did you say? 87, like that. yeah. The fact that this was an unsolved case at that point, and now we know it is solved um, to a degree, that's that's quite, you know, it just makes me think, I wonder how many other cases potentially are in that book that are unsolved cases and that's why they were in the book because they're trying to get information and then information did come out that's the only kind of good takeaway that I can kind of have from this is at least there is some sort of end solved resolution it was interesting because when you read a book you almost accept that you're reading the present tense don't you even though that book is 33 years old when I read it to me I wasn't thinking that I was thinking that I'm reading a book that's been printed last year so I read about that historic crime and discover when it happened and of course jump to the internet and look and then to my delight yeah realize that it had been subsequently solved but yeah I wonder how many other crimes are featured in that book that were unsolved at the time and actually remain unsolved I think that's the real tragedy um isn't it so so yeah it's um it's been a great book for me to get inspiration from and I I feel like um I did Debbie Lindsley I feel like she may have been Mm -hmm. featured in the book was she the one that was murdered on the train she was yeah Yeah. my mum um, was saying about how she used to take a train really similar when in around the same sort of time and she said it was that yeah it was one that really hit home for her actually Debbie's Debbie's murder yeah um so we hope you managed to stay with us till the end and it's not affected you too badly um of course it will have done but not not you know too deeply um please get in touch in all the usual ways so many of you have been in touch over the last couple of weeks through all of our different platforms sound like a dickhead saying that but so many messages have come through through patreon instagram facebook twitter um, one of my absolute idols got in touch on Twitter, Sonia Poulton. Um, she's a, an absolute true uh, truth ambassador, I would call her. Um, check out some of her videos on uh, on YouTube. Um, so yeah, please do get in touch with us if you have anything that that you wanna want us to be aware of and um, do check us out on Patreon. So many of you are supporting us through Patreon. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. 
If you're able to support us in that way, it's massively appreciated because it does make a huge difference to us and it means that we can continue to produce the show on a weekly basis, which is what we want to do. Um, So, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.